Let's read Titus chapter 2. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray again. Father, send your spirit now to help us understand, to apply, to enjoy every word you're speaking to us now. In Christ's name, amen. I'm excited to preach on this portion of Titus. Uh, We've been, if you've been paying attention, we've actually been reading this portion of Titus and including it in the other sections of scripture. So when we read like chapter 1, verses 1 through 10, we also read chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, uh, because... As you look at Paul's letter to Titus, this is actually uh, the engine that's running the whole letter. It's, it's a central hub that all of its ideas are connected to. Kind of like how your heart is connected to every part of your body, more distal than it. Um, and, and its function is, of course, to pump oxygenated blood to keep those distant parts alive and functioning right. Without the heart, the more distant parts of the body die. And so with this section, verses 11 through 15... This is a message that empowers and gives energy to the whole letter. And not only to the whole letter, but to the whole of the Christian life. Unless the message of Titus 2 verses 11 through 15 is at work and functioning well in your life, not only is the letter of uh, Paul to Titus a dead letter to you, but so is your faith. It's got nothing to run on. This, this is the message of chapter 2. Let me, let me give it to you in a sentence. Christ gave himself for you both to save and to sanctify you. That's that's the message from from, uh, Titus 2 that is a central message to the entire uh, Christian faith. Christ gave himself for his people so that they could be both saved and sanctified. And I'm going to explain what those terms mean, and we're going to slowly just work our way through uh, through this passage from top to bottom. So keep it in front of you. So look first at verse 11. This is how he begins this section. For the grace of God has appeared... The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Paul begins by reminding the Christians in Crete of the good news of Jesus Christ. What we just sang about, God so loved the world that he gave his son. That is good news. It's not average good news. This is above average good news. It was in Greek, the Evangelion was this uh, proclamation that a new emperor was born or that a war had finally been won. God's grace and mercy, though, isn't just a message. It's not just a concept that arrives to you, an idea or a philosophy. God's grace to you and his good news is a person. God's grace appeared physically in our world when Christ was born 2,000 years ago. This is what's known as the incarnation, God taking on flesh and living among us. See, when Christ came, he brought salvation for all people. He brought salvation. Now, if, if we're honest, whether we're a Christian or not this morning, we all agree that something, something is not quite right with our world. Something's kind of broken uh, in our relationships. The suffering and evil that we experience, the, the, uh, 
the daily experience that we see on the news, we all want a solution to it. We want something to be fixed. Yet despite our best-intentioned political or social or personal solutions, we can't seem to work our way out of it. We can't bring the changes deep enough. We can't make them last. And this is why Christ has come. This is why he has come, to bring salvation for all people. He comes to the world which has been ruined by sin to bring rescue, to bring healing, to bring repair, to bring salvation, to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. No, Paul is saying this is for everyone. When Paul says God's salvation is for all people, he's saying that there is no category of person that's to be excluded in this salvation. It's offered freely to everyone who would receive it. No one's excluded based on their gender or their age or their race or their upbringing or their social bracket. No one's too high. No one's too low. Because everyone on this planet has been touched by sin. So Christ offers salvation to all people. If you come to Christ with faith, with repentance, you qualify. This is for all people. But note that the salvation which is being brought and it's being offered freely to all people, it wasn't cheap. This is what Christ's death on the cross demonstrates. When we look at the cross of Jesus, we see that the judgment that sin deserves is death and hell. It's horrific. And yet God was pleased to place this judgment on Jesus instead of on us. This is why Christ has given himself for you, to save you. This is good news. But it's not the whole story. Because Christ gave himself for you both to save and to sanctify you. And this is where Paul immediately goes in the same breath. This is really just one run-on sentence between 11 and 14. He goes immediately to teach the Christians in Crete this. Look what uh, verse 12 continues to do. God's grace comes not only bringing salvation for all people, but verse 12, it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The word sanctify that, that I'm using here, it, conceptually it means that uh, it's making a people set apart. It's making them holy, to be different. This is a word that's used to describe radical, uh, personal, and moral change. Sanctification happens when a Christian, cooperating with God by faith, walks in greater obedience to God's commands, where we begin to gradually change, to begin to look actually more like Jesus. We begin to love everything that Jesus loves, to hate the things that he hates. The word Paul uses here is training at the beginning of verse 12. This is a word that's related, as it sounds like, to being disciplined, to being rigorously and thoroughly educated. If you've ever been trained or educated at a high level, whether a sport or a professional discipline, you know that intense training is difficult. It doesn't come easy. It takes time and sweat and blood and tears there are some visions of the Christian life that just kind of assume that living like a Christian is as quick and easy as making instant oatmeal. It's no problem, right? We love instant gratification everywhere in our lives, so why not in our spiritual lives too? You become a Christian, and then zap, God's gotcha. Change isn't hard. Bad habits that you've developed over a lifetime, uh, they don't need any effort to wrinkle out. It's easy. It's instantaneous. Now, you may know somebody like that, or perhaps something similar may have happened to you when you became a Christian. God radically and quickly changed you, and that's amazing. But listen, Paul's saying this is far from the norm for most Christians. Paul is saying sanctification is an ongoing, lifelong training process. If you're here this morning, you're looking for three easy steps. Mike, give me three easy steps for becoming a mature Christian. I can't give them to you. They don't exist. 
You're going to be disappointed. Christians are sometimes discouraged by this. They're sad that, that, that their spiritual growth, their change is slow. They struggle with the same impatience and fear and anxieties that they have for a long time. But here's the good news. Christ has given himself for you both to save and to sanctify you. The powerful grace that we see at work on the cross, the kind of grace that can rescue dead people spiritually from death and judgment, that same grace and power is at work right now to train you to renounce sin and to live a godly life, to become sanctified. As Apostle Peter writes in his first letter, he says, Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we, may, we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. See, Christ didn't give himself just to secure heaven for you in some future age, though that's true. He gave himself to transform you in the present age. Look at how Paul describes our training in sanctification. Notice it has both a negative and a positive dimension to it. Uh, look at verse 12. Uh, this grace that God has given teaches um, us to both renounce sinful actions and sinful passions or desires. So sanctification involves what's known as a double denial. Uh, renouncing, condemning, fighting both sinful actions and sinful desires. Jesus speaks about the necessity of this uh, both external and internal change in his Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 through 7. There were some religious people in that day as in our own day who are, are kind of content with the external forms of religiosity. As long as outwardly we look pretty good, you know, we're not doing big bad sins like adultery, that's fine. If you, if you harbor and savor internal lust, uh, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody, you're okay. But Jesus responds to that by saying, you have heard it said by some of these religious leaders, by the traditions of the fathers, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. See, the sanctification that Christ gave himself for is meant to cleanse us progressively, sometimes slowly, from all sin, both in body and soul, both in uh, the inside and the outside, both our actions and our desires. So, so negatively, sanctification involves actively putting off sinful actions and desires, but positively, positively, sanctification means something too. It means putting on godly living. That's what we talked about last week. That's the, the preceding section in chapter 2. Christians shouldn't simply be known by what they don't do, which is sometimes what Christians are known for. Rather, we should be known by what we do, positively, because Christian sanctification always has a negative and a positive dimension. God's grace positively trains all Christians to, if you look halfway through verse 12, it mentions three things. Live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. First, every Christian should live a self-controlled life. Doesn't matter if you're young or old, man or woman, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, you should live a self-controlled life, Paul is saying. A self-controlled life was, is one that is sober, that isn't under the control of our lusts and our desires, our addictions and our passions, the pressures of society, what our friend group is bearing on us. No, we're to control ourselves. We are to conform our actions and our desires to that which pleases God in every way. Second, every Christian should live an upright life. That is, we're called to be just. We should care about what Christ cares about, working to see his kingdom come, his will be done 
on earth as it is in heaven. Third, every Christian should live a godly life. Again, if you want to refer back to verses 1 through 11 of chapter 2, he goes into some detail for every single Christian, what godly living particularly looks like. Um, We are called to live according to the standards that God himself gives us in his word. We're not to live however our conscience dictates, uh, what makes sense and what's agreeable to us personally. We're not to live according to what society tells us is good and normal and acceptable. We're also not to live by our culture's traditions or our own family's traditions that, uh, that might contradict what God's word says. Rather, we are Christians. We belong to God, body and soul, both in life and death. So he's the one who sets standards for what godly living is. Again, the the intention of Paul here is to say this is actually really good news. Christ gave himself for this purpose, to save and to sanctify you. If you're tired of being ruled by your desires, this is meant to be a balm for you. If you wish you could, you are so frustrated with yourself sometimes, but you cannot find the power within yourself to change. You're being asked now to, in faith, look at where the power actually resides. It's not in you, friends. It's in God who has offered this strength to you in the spirit through his son. This is what God's grace is. God's grace isn't just something that's kind of nice that hovers around us. Rather, it's active. It's powerful. It is personal. There's hope Paul is giving to the Cretan Christians, many of whom they've been swimming in in the ocean of their culture for a long time, and they feel somewhat powerless to change the way they think and act and feel. They are ruled by their own sin and the sin of others. The good news to them and to us is that in Christ, we can begin to change today. It's not a magic bullet. It won't happen immediately, but it is certain because Christ Christ has appeared. God's grace has appeared. And as we walk with Christ, he will progressively bring this healing and renewal that he's promised. Look at verse 13. Paul reminds his people that things actually won't always be this hard. As we labor, as we look forward, sometimes we take two steps forward, one step back. Paul tells them to wait, just wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If you're suffering, if you're tired, if you have been feeling wearied and beat up by your own sin or maybe the sin of others, things that have been done to you that you can't shake, you are exhausted by disease or by sadness or by death, Right now isn't the whole story. God's grace has appeared. Listen, he has come in the incarnation, but he will come again. There's another coming in the future. And this is what our happy hope is, is not only that Christ has saved us in the past, but he will save and sanctify us completely in the future. That day is coming. Many of us will walk the rest of our lives with with a physical or even a spiritual or emotional limp. The rest of our lives will walk this way will never be fully healed in this life. But listen, final rescue is just beyond the horizon. This is a promise that's being made to you. Rest is coming. Full healing is a certainty. So hold on. Keep waiting. Work. Pray. Hope until that day comes. You can be certain of this because Christ has given himself to you not only to save you, but to sanctify you, to bring full healing In verse 14, Paul continues to describe this gracious work of Christ using these words. Look at me uh, with me in verse 14. Our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession 
who are zealous for good works. This is sort of a a reiteration, a reaffirming of what Paul's already communicated. Uh, Christ gave himself for us on the cross to redeem us or or to rescue us, to win us back from sin and law-breaking, but also to purify us, to cleanse, to sanctify us, to live godly lives. Look at the details he adds at the second half of this formula in verse 14. He says he wants to purify people for himself, a people for his own possession, who are zealous for good works. In Greek, in Koine Greek, which Paul originally wrote this letter in, uh, Paul writes that God is purifying for himself a a leon perusion, that is, a, a special people, a people special. Christ is making a totally unique people out of the people of the church, a special people. The King James Version translates uh, Leon Perusion as a peculiar people, a different, a distinct people from those that surround them, whether in Crete or in Halifax. These peculiar or special people, sometimes we don't think it's a compliment, like if somebody calls us special or peculiar, like, oh, I don't know if you're shooting at me, but um, it might not sound like a compliment. It's intended to be a good thing. We are a peculiar people because we are focused on good works. We are zealous for them, enthusiastic, energized, eager to do all that God has called uh, us to. We're to be little zealots, right? Zealots not for career advancement, not for personal wealth or or a good reputation, but zealous for God's kingdom to come, for Jesus' fame to be spread far and wide. Finally, Paul tells us that this is to be Titus's message. Uh, Look at verse 15. The heartbeat of the church in Crete The center of the theology and the belief of the church in Crete ought to be the center of Titus' teaching to the church. He is to declare this message. This is a very forceful word for teaching. That is, he's to be constant with it, to be tireless with it. Both to exhort, that word could mean encourage people, to cheer them on, but also another strong word, to rebuke them or to challenge his people to severely warn and correct them if it's needed. Paul finishes by telling Titus, listen, let no one, not people in Cretan society, not people in the church, not the false teachers that we've been describing, don't let anyone disregard you. Don't let them despise you. You just keep right on teaching, Titus. No matter what people think about you, no matter what they may whisper about you, this is your calling from God. Do this with all the authority that God has given you. This is the message that God is giving to the church in Crete long ago. But he is speaking this to us here, Christ Church Halifax, this morning. Christ gave himself for us. He gave himself body and blood to save us. That is good news. But he also gave himself to sanctify us, to purify us, to make us into a particular kind of people. We need to see salvation and sanctification for what they are in the Bible. They they are wed. They are married. You know, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And so this means something for us in the church. It ought to mean something for us. I'm going to give you two applications of our text. Um, one of them, selfishly, is more for me, but I want you to listen in, okay? Um, for, for, for Christian leaders, for pastors, for some of the men in this room who might be uh, one day uh, called to be elders in the church. As we saw in verse 15, as we read about uh, when Paul was describing qualifications for elders in chapter 1, as a pastor, I'm commanded by God to declare everything in God's word for you. Everything that God speaks, I'm to teach thoroughly, every part of it, not leaving anything out here in Halifax, and I'm to do so with all authority and confidence and to not care if you're offended. That's my job. To not let your personal opinions of me, of my preaching, 
the content of God's word, to not let it slow me down a bit. Now, I'm a bit punk rock. I don't, I don't look like it. It's not a punk rock sweater. And so part of, this is part of my personality and disposition, but I'm, I'm, I am encouraged. I'm, uh, I'm being challenged by this word to not let other people's opinions of me change the way that I preach. See, Christ wants all God's people to be like this, to not be ashamed of his words, uh, but there's a special emphasis in, in Paul's letter to Titus, particularly for teachers and preachers. This emphasis is really important for someone like Titus to hear because, of course, everything that he's about to speak to the Cretans is totally out of step with Cretan culture. Like, what are you, what are you speaking about the way men and women are supposed to behave, younger and older women, their approach to, to alcohol, to sex, to money, to power? Uh, it, it'll sit, stick out like a sore thumb in this notorious region of the Roman Empire. But listen, this kind of teaching sticks out like a sore thumb in Canada too, doesn't it? And, and really, this is the case wherever God's word is preached or goes out to. Certain parts of the message are somewhat culturally acceptable, but others aren't. And so to consider our own context in Canadian culture, Christian sexual ethics are way out of step. But the Christian command to love our enemies, this is still somewhat culturally applauded and encouraged. If we were to transport ourselves to another nation, somewhere else, a different culture in our world, Christian sexual ethics would actually be normative. It would be obvious. It would be completely inoffensive. People wouldn't blink. But the command to love our enemies would make no sense at all. It would be disregarded as, as foolish talk, harmful to families and to society. And so pastors, whether they are in Haiti or Halifax, wherever they are around the globe, they're commanded simply to declare all of God's word as God's word, to speak what God has spoken, and simply not give a rip what, what you or what the culture around them might think about it. And listen, I, I'm, I am no good to you as a pastor if I worry during the week what someone might think based on, or how they might react based on what I preach on Sunday. I, I will be of no use to you if I try to weekly massage the message so that it, it suits the tastes of modern, educated, enlightened Canadians. My job as a pastor is not to modify God's word. It's to declare it, to speak it as it's been written. And then to not let anyone disregard or despise me for it. I love you guys. I pray for you regularly. I'm thankful for your faith. I'm, I'm so thankful to see the growth that I've seen in this church in the years that we've been gathering. But listen, my love and my affection for you is not going to stop me from exhorting, encouraging, or even rebuking you according to God's word. In fact, it's my love for you, my commitment to your faith as a pastor that means I can't stop, won't stop. I, I got to keep this going. That's the first kind of application, more for pastors and potential elders. But this is second. As a church, our goal must be to, in our words, thoughts, and deeds, become a peculiar people in Halifax. That needs, needs to be a goal for our church. Many people in church, they don't want to stand out too much, and I understand that. It's, it's not enjoyable to stand out. If we could just have a church where we're kind and friendly and welcoming and warm, that would probably be enough. And, and as individuals, many of us have that kind of goal in life. We want to be primarily known as being compassionate people. We want to be hardworking. We want to be honest. And listen, all of that's great, but that's just what we call being Canadian. Right? None of these behaviors are peculiarly, if that's a word, Christian None of them are unique to Christians. Canadians, we have a few Americans here, but Canadians, you, you got to know, we are the nicest, most polite people you can meet. 
probably, all right? You probably have some neighbors, some coworkers, some friends who are just like super Canadian. Salt of the earth, give their shirt off their back kind of people, and I love it. I love Canadians. But Christ gave his body and blood for you not to make you Canadian, but to make you into a special people, a peculiar people, unique, to be Jesus people. God's peculiar people treasure God's word more than Canadians do. God's word is the center of our life, the center of our home, the center of our ethics, centering how we ought to feel and to understand the world around us. We bring it to bear on every single part of our lives because it is a word from our Father. It is a sweet word to us. Peculiar Christians handle wealth and power and success differently. They want to use what they've been given and entrusted by God to further Christ's kingdom, to further Christ's fame, not their own. They offer not only kindness and friendship and other Canadian values to other people, but the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ as the best thing that they have to give to other people. Do some self-assessment right now. Are you in any significant way out of step with Canadians or Canadian culture because following Christ demands it? Are you peculiar in a Christian way? I don't care about other ways. <laughs> in a peculiarly, in a uniquely Christian way. <laughs> is your career, your career path, is your parenting, are your entertainment choices, is your use of money and free time, is it simply Canadian or is it uniquely Christian? Based on Titus 2, we shouldn't be trying to establish a weekly Sunday gathering of nice, sweet Canadians, though that's what you are. We should be praying, we should be laboring, working hard to see Christ Church Halifax grow as a peculiar people, little zealots to do good works that God has set before us. Let's finish here. Friends, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 15. Again, it is at the heart of the Christian faith. It is the engine I'd encourage you to memorize it. Get a back tattoo. I don't know if you can do that, but let this word change you. Because Christ has given himself for you, both to save and to sanctify you. While we are directed by God's words and all of our ethics, you know, what godly living, in, living is, the heart that sustains this type of life, the jet fuel that empowers your faith and obedience and love isn't our own efforts merely. The good news is that Jesus Christ has given himself for you, body and blood, so that he can both save and sanctify you. Now may you celebrate this good news. Christ has given himself for you. He loves you. He rejoices to rescue and to purify you. May this good news begin to change you today. May God's grace be power and fuel for us to put off old ways of living and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. May you wait with anticipation for Christ's final return where he'll finally set your broken bones and heal your wounds. May you set your hope in full of the full salvation and full sanctification he's promised for that day. And may we be made into a peculiar people, zealous for good works. Let's pray again. Father, we are desperate for your spirit now to fill us so that we can do all that is pleasing to you. In Christ's name and for his glory, amen.